You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Today on TopCast, we've got a special interview with uh, somebody that worked at Williams from 1954 up to the mid-1970s. And then he worked in Bally from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. And he has designed a total of 65 different games for Williams from 1962 to 1975. So he's a game designer, and he was also president of the pinball department at Bally from 1975 to 1985. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. So I'd like to welcome Norm Clark of Williams and of Bally to uh, Topcast today for uh, for an interview. Now Norm has a medical condition that makes him very hard to understand and very difficult to record on the telephone. I had some problems, especially in the first two or three minutes of the interview. I ask you just to bear with me. Uh, it gets much better after that initial two or three minutes, and the recording cleans up a lot. So I'd like to welcome Norm Clark to TopCast tonight, and we're going to give him a call right now. Hello? Norm, this is, this is Clay. How are you feeling today? You okay? Not bad. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Can't speak too well. I have a stroke, and uh, it's affecting my speech, so I'm not speaking too clear. You're doing fine, Norm. I really, I really appreciate you talking to us. So, tell me about your uh, your first memories of pinball and how you got involved into the pinball industry. Well, that was kind of a strange situation. I was in electronics. And a friend of mine also was in electronics, and he worked for William. And he used to go over there. And Harry William asked him would he do come and work for him and introduce electronics into the pinball industry. He went over there, and uh, he uh, brought, he had suggested when I come over, and uh, that's how I got into the pinball industry. I knew nothing about pinball. So what year do you think that was? 1954. Okay, and so did, did Williams, Harry Williams hire you right then? Yes, right, right then he hired me. And, uh, of course, back in those days, we weren't into the chips as we are today. We were exactly two. And, uh, the idea for controlling the game with electronics wasn't feasible. So, my friend left and went to Bell how wanted me to go, although I was infatuated by the pinball, and uh, I stayed. 
and at that time I was in the engineering department as a technician doing putting the games together, wiring them and uh doing some of the circuitry. <coughs> and uh at that time we had Harry Mabs as the, the designer and uh Harry retired from Williams, went to Florida, left him, left uh, Williams high and dry for a designer. Sam Stern was the president and co-owner of the of Williams, so he hired. Steve Cordick, and uh, of course that made Sam Stern a little nervous having only one designer and no backup. So he asked me to try my hand at designing. The first game I designed was Kingpin back in 1961. It was produced early 62. And from that time on, I was a designer at Williams. And I stayed at Williams till 1975 and Bill Donald had been after me to go to Bowie. So eventually I landed up going to Bowie. So on your first game, the Kingpin in nineteen sixty two, were you were you pretty happy with that design when it came out? I mean were you were you pretty proud of that game? Yeah, it was the first first game that I had produced. I'd made a couple of whiteboards prior to Kingpin and uh, they were too advanced in the, the way pins were going at that time. So I landed up making Kingpin, which became a pretty good game. And naturally, it, it made me very happy. The um, how did you how did, did you get along well with Steve Kordak? Oh, we, we worked side by side at Williams for years. We got along very well with him and uh, never had any problems. So how did you guys figure out, like, did you alternate, like you do a game one month and he would do a game the next month? No, we both, we had both doing the games. He, his room was right, right next to mine. And, uh, we, we both went ahead building games. And, uh, uh, he, he would ask me to play his game and I would ask him to play my game and, and, uh, that's where it went. No problem, we both, both worked together side by side. Did you guys ever collaborate on a game, you know, where it was like both of you designed a game, or, or did it not work that way? No, 
He designed his game, and I designed mine, and that's the way it went. When he thought he had a good game, that was produced, and I, the same with me. And the, the two of us kept, kept, uh, Williams going with games. <laughs> now, the one game that you did that's really kind of famous from that era is Moulin Rouge. How, tell me about how you came up with that, that idea with like the, the painting and the, and the background and how it's backlit. Actually, that, the idea of the, the background, the, the backlash was actually Harry Williams because he did the game prior, a couple of years prior to that and he used that, that type of deal. That actually was his, his idea in the background. Now, did you like doing um, single player or multiplayers or add-a-balls, or did it not matter to you? I did, did both of them, uh, all of them, and it, it didn't matter to me uh, as long as the game was accepted. Now, when you designed a game... Did you have uh, artwork in mind for it, or was that always the uh, the artwork people that came up with that idea? Well, first of all, years ago, Ad Posted is all the artwork. We never had an art department. The, the art department came much later in the uh, career. Ad poster, we would tell Ad poster basically what we want, go ahead and do the artwork, and they bring it in and show it to us. If there was something we wanted to change, they would take it back and re-submit it. But uh, basically the artwork was left off the Ad poster. Now, on, uh, in 1966, you did a game called Full House, and it, and it had um, score reels on the play field. Was that, uh, was that your idea? Yes. Jackpot and other games, I, I put the uh, score reels like in a slot machine on the play field. That was, that was mine. That's a pretty neat idea. I mean, it's uh, it is very much slot machine-ish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, in 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 Europe, that was accepted. In the United States, I had to change the symbol away from a slot machine, but keeping the score around. So there was a it was a difference in the. Artwork on the, the tapes on the score in the United States and different for Europe. Now, um, you also did a, a a pair of games, the Magic City and the Magic, um, yeah, the Magic City. That was, the, you know, that was a, a a pretty well received game. Is do you have any stories associated with the design of that game? Well, there was one one real uh, big story. On the back glass, the uh, fountain, I had a, a colored wheel turned around and changing the colors 
in the fountain and uh, somebody in the in Williams at that time went to Harry and said it's costing you so much to put the car wheel in and he talked Harry uh, Sam Sir into taking the wheel out and using colored bulbs. That was the only thing that was changed in in that game. It was well accepted and Magic Town was the end ball and uh, the, that was the uh, Yeah, they were both very very well received. Another kind of unusual game, at least by artwork design, would be Eager Beaver in 1965. Whose idea was it to come up with that theme? Most, most of the pin games, uh, the designer came up with the name and basically the theme. But the artwork, of course, was done by Ad Poster and, uh, they submitted the artwork and we would make changes or approve of it. But, uh, we, most of the games that Steve or I did, we named the game, or else we had people in Williams in the in the office come and play the game, and, and some of them suggested names. But uh, by all reason, we we uh, named the game. Tell me about Apollo and Lunar Shot. Those were. Two games, of course. Apollo was the replay, and Lunar Shot was the Attaball, and and those were again games that were very very well designed and very very well received with backlash animation and people to this day. I mean, they love those that pair of games. Uh huh. Well, same thing applied there. We 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 made the game. We we came up with the the ideas and the and. It, in most cases, I don't remember whether I made the game of power or not, but uh, it might have been that poster. I, I don't know. I designed the, the game, but I, I forget a lot of the stuff now. Anyway. Whose idea was it to use that backlash animation in those two games? As far as scoring and the animation, it was our idea. The uh, artwork was done around the what we did to the game. In other words, if we had a, a, a scoring thing or a bonus thing, and the, the artwork was done around that. Now, another game you did in 1969 was called Gridiron, which was a, uh, a pitch and bat football game. You have uh, any, um, any information about that game you can tell us about? Well, uh, the, the game, as I recall, a game my memory is not too good, but we, uh, if, was that the game with the 
targets. Yeah, it was set up as a football field, and you would um, basically, it was a pitching bat where the ball would come out the center and you'd kick it with uh, like a baseball-style bat to get so many yards to get touchdowns. Yeah, well, that was done with the baseball team only in, in gridiron, the football uh, rather than baseball, and I, I did it and uh, made a football game out of it. How did you think that came out? Well, pretty, pretty well. It sold pretty good. And, uh, I, I recall, I think was, uh, Louis Bolsberg was asking me, uh, for quite some time about building a game on football. And I think that was the reason why I did it. Now, you started working with one of the artists at AdWorks. His name was, um, what, Christian Christian Marsh. And he did the what's known as like that pointy style artwork. What did you think of that style of artwork on your games? Uh, he, he did quite a few game, my games, and uh, I was very pleased with the artwork. Spanish Eyes was another one was done by, first of all, was done by Joe Magic, who used to work for Ad Poster, and uh, he he didn't finish, he finished the artwork, but we weren't happy with it or something, and uh, somebody else did it. So did you have a preference as far as the artwork on your game being the Christian Marsh pointy style people or the more cartoonish style or the more realistic style artwork? Did you have a preference? Not really. They, uh, as as uh, time went on, we started going into more of the abstract type of art. And uh, uh, it it seemed to take. No, I was happy with it all. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's the kind of artwork that pointy people artwork. You know, you either love it or you don't. Um, some people really like it, and some people really don't. It doesn't seem to be much middle ground on that artwork. You know. Well, take a game like a go go. It was a good more abstract, more modern type of artwork. Yeah, that was real popular during the 1970s, that, that kind of modernistic, you know, artwork. Yeah. Right. As you look back, in the, in the late 50s, it was more or less the uh, kids, kids-style artwork. Now, tell me about travel time. And um, you know that was that was a um, a, a single player you know, machine that came out in 1973, and it was basically kind of a timed game. Tell me what you know about your design philosophy and thinking that was going on on for that game. Well, I I was looking for 
some other way of producing a game like there's certain territories that wouldn't allow replays. In other words, we built built Asphalt for Italy, for New York. There were several places that you couldn't sell a, a, a replay game. So I got the idea if, if we made a game with time added that it would be acceptable. So that's why the uh, travel time was made. How was it received? It gave you more time. How, how was it received by uh, by your customers? Well, certain locations it was received pretty it, Basically, it wasn't too bad, but uh, certain, certain locations, certain areas, it was received real well. But it, it wasn't something that would would have taken off like I had hoped. Now, one game that, to me, is a true classic that you designed was OXO, uh, which is basically kind of a, a, a tic-tac-toe-style theme on the on the playboard, and it's really, really a cool game to play. Tell me about tell me about designing that game. Anything special? It was well received. Was it a hard design electronically? No, not not. Any harder than the other Kind of the whole package is really, really interesting with the kind of, you know, the, the bluish, greenish colors and, um, and the, uh, and the artwork and the kind of the fluorescent colors. I mean, the, the whole game came together really, really well. At the time, were you, I bet you were pretty proud of that game. Yes, I thought it was one of my better games. Now, how did you feel about um, Stratoflight and Superflight. Nothing special. They were, I thought, well accepted games. Now, when you designed a game, did you have to design the electronic circuit too? Yeah, I felt when we built games, then, then it's not like they are what they are doing today. We we put the whole thing together. I did the circuit set for the Whitewood, and uh, uh, we, we built the whole game ourselves. We, we, when I say a Whitewood, we built it low, without any artwork. We put it together, we made many, many changes, and played it continuously until we were satisfied with it. Now, how would you, uh, when you were done with the game in, in its white wood, how would you go about testing it? Would you play, have like, have somebody play it like hundreds of times, seeing how many replays or high scores and stuff like that you would get? Yeah, we'd have people in the office, so on and so forth, after we, we were satisfied with the game, we'd have people come in from the office and play, play the games. Of course, we're always concerned with the time it would take to play the game. 
So that the game didn't, didn't play for half an hour, not make any money. So that was an, an important feature, and also that the amount of replays are kept in line, and uh, things like that. So naturally we have to play the game to uh, be satisfied with those uh, conditions. Now, when... Um did you have uh, get any influence from at this time? You know, you were at, you're at Williams. Like, did you see the Bally and Gottlieb games that were being made at the time, and did they influence your design des- design decisions at all? When when uh, Gottlieb would put a, a test game on location, well, we would go and take a look at it, but basically. see if there's anything different. We try not to copy anything that another manufacturer did. So they didn't really have any influence, but you guys were just curious, huh? Yeah, we, we go and see how the game works and, and uh, what we want to do on the game. If, if something came out that was uh, definitely a new feature and looked like a great feature, we might be tempted to do something about it. But normally, uh, that that's about the size of it. If if uh, somebody in San Francisco came up with a game, we. we we go there to see it, but again, uh, we basically wouldn't try and copy any anything. When you started working at Williams uh, in 1954, how how old were you? Uh, about 32. What type of stuff did you do uh, for a living before that? I was in, in the electronics. I worked for a helicopter radio, working on uh, single sideband receivers and stuff like that. So now tell me about how you went, because you, you changed and went from Williams over to Bally. How did that happen? Well, Bill, Bill O'Donnell, who was chairman of the board, Bally, was interested in me, and he had asked me several times about joining Bally, and I had dinner with him, and so on and so forth, and uh, 75, and they called six of us into Seaburg and uh, we signed contracts with Seaburg to stay at Williams which kind of upset the apple cart with Sam Stern. Sam uh, and Bill finally 
made me a, another offer, and I said, if if I, I if I don't get called in to sign a contract with Williams by such and such a date, I will join them. That's what happens. All right, we're going to take a break from our interview with Norm Clark of Williams and Bally, and uh, we'll be back in just a second. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of TopCast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos, insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal is for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Norm Clark of Williams and Bally, and uh, with some more of his pinball manufacturing stories. How did the people at Williams feel when you left? I don't know. Steve, Steve was there when I left. He was the only designer left. Or Sam, Sam, what didn't feel very good. He he came to me. Said not you, Norm. Not you, Simon. I said yes. Oh, that that did. Sam Sir was a great guy. I liked him, and he liked me, but things didn't work out at the end. I joined Bally. When you went to Bally, was it a uh, maybe a, like a corporate shock. I mean, was it a big difference in in the in the you know in just like the corporate environment and the working environment, or was it pretty much the same as Williams? When I went to Valley, I went as head of the pinball department, and I was made eventually a little while after there, I was made vice president president of the pinball division. I didn't actually sit down and design any games there. I was head of the department. So how, um, who were the designers that were working for you at, at Bally at that time? Well, there was Jim Patton, Greg Nick, George Christian. Actually, George, I hired him at Williams and, uh, after I went to Bally, I hired him to come to Bally. Gary Gayton, Greg Mick, and uh, Jim Tampa, and George Russell. Now, at the time, Bally had their own art department. Did that make things easier for your pinball people? Well, Bally had their own department, yes. It didn't... Uh, make things any easier. I mean, you're working more closely with the artists, I would think, because they're all in the same building, right? I, I would, that wasn't, uh, that didn't make the games maybe, um, I don't know, maybe, um, you know, link better to the artwork? Well, uh, at Valley, we went in a lot with uh, personalities, like Evil Knievel, Hugh Hefner, stuff like that. And they had a, a, a big 
Now, when um, on some of the games like Eight Ball Deluxe and Kiss and Space Invaders and Silverball Mania, did you did you have any involvement in those games? Because they have a very the play fields kind of have a Norm Clarkish feel to them as far as the shots and the layout. Well, as far as Eight Ball Deluxe, I had quite a bit of input with George, because I brought George over to Ballet, and of course I had done the eight ball theme at Williams, and uh, so I had quite a bit of input there. The other games, uh, I had a little input there, because I'm looking over the designer, if I saw something I didn't like, I'll probably say something. A-Ball was one of the games that, and of course, all the games that George would do, I had the input quite a bit, because I watched over him a, a little more, because he was new as a designer. Did you like working at, at Bally more than you liked working at Williams? No, I felt more at home designing games at Williams to tell the truth. But I liked Bowie, they treated me well. Only thing was, I didn't design any of the games. I just overseed the games. So you liked to have your hand in, in the design, in the design aspect. It was more fun for you. Yeah, I'm more rewarding in, in that sense. Now, George Christian uh, was the, the the guy that you you mentored. Now, where where did you get him from? Where did and and why did you bring him into Valley? Well, when he when I was at Williams, his name actually <laughs> I don't know what I should say. His name was. George Zazaba, he, he changed his name, and he came into Williams as a technician, putting the games, putting the rules together. After he designed the game and did the circuitry, George and a couple other people put them together. When I left, Williams went to Bowie, he called me and, and wanted to come to, to Bowie with me, and I hired him. I hired him at Williams, and I hired him at Bowie. Why did he change his name? Well, he was from Iran or one of those places, and I think that had something to do with, with it, but he, he, he changed his name. Now, how did you feel about the transition from electromechanical games to solid state games? Well, the solid state games were, the solid state was designed by it was a different department, so 
when we would finish for the game, we would use the lab department to put it to design the together. Proper was the head of the electronic department. When you were at Williams, were they work were they starting to work on solid state games then? We we were playing around with it uh, yes. But they weren't producing solid state so on now, when you went over to Bali, though, did they pretty much have their system already uh, kind of designed? Pretty much so. They were just starting to come out with with it. It, it was in its infancy. <coughs> How did you feel about the the whole solid state thing compared to the electromechanical? Did you like? Uh, electromechanical better, or did you like solid state better? Well, you can do a lot more with solid state. It's easier to change things, and you can do you can do a lot more with solid state. For instance, with the eight ball games. Well, first of all, the first eight ball games were two players. We accomplished that because. I designed, uh, came up with the, the split bank. So we had memory between first and second player, which was the only way we could do it was when I came up with the split bank. We'd have a reset on, uh, for the first player, reset for the second player. So the relay bank worked for both of us. Whereas prior to that, you had one one uh, reset coil on the bank. You couldn't couldn't do what we were doing then. Every there by the use of a smooth bank for two players, but on the solid state you could have two, three, four. Five, six players that didn't matter. They didn't need a bank. <laughs> the artwork on Eight Ball kind of had a uh, uh, a Happy Days Fonzie type character on the back glass. Was there any legal ramifications from the TV show? Uh, so the uh, the player that looked looked similar was a cousin or something of one of the artists. So we, we got away with it. Did they try and, did anybody try and sue you over that artwork? Not that I know. Yeah, I don't think we have any problem. The artist didn't really, it wasn't intended to have a kind of happy days uh, um, kind of licensed look to it. It's just kind of how it worked out? Well, like I say, the guy was a, a, a cousin or something. It, it wasn't only trying to copy pawns or something like that. So legally, he, he could prove what he did, but I never heard of any repercussions. Now, how long did you stay at Bally for? From 75 
In what made you decide to get out of uh, Bali in 1985? Well, a supplier of ours had come to me and asked me about starting up a pinball department at his plant. And uh, there were certain reasons why I was uh, tempted. And so we set up up with Flipper Limited. And uh, of course, the pinball companies, which at that time was Williams, Gottlieb, and uh, Valley, they had their own design department, so they weren't too tempted to uh, go elsewhere. And we were tempted to go, go to a company in Europe to design games where they wanted to get into design, but uh, our price and what they wanted to pay didn't work out. And what was the name of this company? In Europe? Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So, so how did you feel about the video games? Because when you were at Bally, um, you know, you had, um, you know, you had a lot of competition with uh, with video games at the time in the in the early eighties. How how did that? How did you feel about that? Well, my particular thought. Now this is me talking. I thought that the pin pinball industry was going a little bit too far, a little bit over over producing, uh, over trying to sell uh, the games that were putting everything in, but the kitchen sink. And my thought was that they were forcing out of the market and I think they actually did uh, video games were taking hold pretty well and uh, but, but pinball games we, apparently we tried putting another 50 cents a play but that wasn't working too well and we were putting so much in into the games that we were almost going to pay as much for the pin game as for the video game that made money. So, personally, I think they priced themselves out of the market by putting too much junk in the pin game. So at the time, you're saying that video games sold brand new for more money than pinball machines? Yeah. Yeah. When we came over with pinball machines with ramps all over the place and uh, spells and special features, it, that, that stuff cost money. What, what we used to do is we had 
eventually uh, they landed up with the price going sky high on the pin games and you couldn't make make it people wouldn't take that much to play the game. So Was there any particular game in your history at Williams or Valley that you were associated with that you were really, really proud of, like, you know, the, the pinnacle as far as you're concerned of your of your pinball work? Well, eight ball was one of them. The the Bally or Williams eight ball? Well, at Williams, at Bally eight ball deluxe did very well. It won the game of the year a couple of years in a row. Uh, which was good. Eight ball was one of them. Uh, a go-go was one of them. It did very, very well in, in, in Europe as well as the States. And that's when I thought the game was the, uh, the spinning wheel in the, the playground. That did very well. Also, was a good game. All the games. Was there anybody at either of the two companies that you especially liked to work with? Uh, you know, in, in regards to design or art or, or any aspect of pinball? Well, normally, at Williams, where I was designing, uh, either Steve or I, we never went to other people and asked to to help us with ideas and design. We designed the game. We'd have people in the office come in and play them, take a notice of their feeling. That's basically how how the games came to be. Was there any particular feature? that you really, really liked in the game? Like, a lot of your games had a really tight nest, especially your Williams games. Well, basically, a lot of your Williams games had a really tight nest of, like, five pop bumpers, where the ball would get in there, and, I mean, it would just kick all around all over the place. That was kind of a, uh, a you know, kind of a Norm Clark signature feature. Was there anything else that, you know, you really liked to, to put in your games? Well, one, one of the features that I on several games was putting the pop bumper down at the flippers. The bumper would come in and work around this before either go back on the play field or go or go out. Which was well accepted. Right, um also other pieces that I used that were well accepted to was a shot up to the to the top of the playground through an hour. Yeah, like fantastic. Uh, in, in the Williams, fantastic. I think that when that came out in 1972, that one had that pop bumper down by the flippers, and it would sometimes it would get in there and it would just really, really kick around. There were several games like that, and it would come down and, and uh, actually go around, come back, back and forth, and come back out on the playground. At times it would go out, but 
Tell me about um, Doodlebug, the 1971 Williams game, Doodlebug. That, that had the ball going back and forth on the playfield. That teacher was used by Harry Williams. It wasn't my, what my idea, but uh, that was Harry Williams' idea. In that game, it worked out well. It was accepted. Yeah, it was kind of a cool feature. It was like a little area. Um, it was like a, an elongated slot in the playfield with a plastic window, and the ball would move back and forth between two magnet poles. It would only, you know, the ball would only travel two, two and a half inches, but it would. It was very. Uh, yeah. Right. Sorry about that. Yeah, it was it was really it was neat in that it um um it uh you know, you know it was very uh, uh you know almost like a, a second hand on a clock going back and forth almost. That was a Harry Williams feature that I never uh, used it on that game. Another game of yours that was really well accepted that we talked a little bit about was the the Spanish Eyes, um, in in the um, in the the, the really kind of cool artwork on that game. Um, were, were you pretty proud of that game? Yes, I thought Spanish Eyes turned out. Yeah, I think the artwork helped it. It was a very good game, and uh, uh, the, the artwork. Now the another uh, pair of games that was real popular was Swinger and Funfest, and it had kind of a uh, a score reel in the back glass that would uh, give you kind of like a bonus a bonus score. That was kind of a unique feature. Right. Where where did that idea come from? Well, I recall mine. <laughs> I I I I don't know. No, I don't think anybody ever did it. I thought it was uh, it was kind of a neat feature. Um, you know, was that just you know something you just came up with one day? Well, whether I was sitting at home thinking or whatever, some of these ideas just come to you when you're not there. Buy them and incorporate them in the game. But, like a lot of games, like the roulette wheel, I got that idea out of a toy store. Uh, You mean the roulette wheel like that was used in Fantastic? Yeah. At the bottom of the playfield. I don't remember if it was used in fantastic or not, but I used it on several games. As a matter of fact, uh, I had mentioned 
we never tried to copy anything from another uh, manufacturer, but Godly, who are very much like that, they tried the other one, one game, I don't remember the game, but they, they, they copied it. Yeah, Fantastic used, um, it had that pop bumper between the flippers and it also had that, uh, had that roulette wheel in the, uh, in the play field too, which was kind of cool. Uh-huh. Well, that, the roulette wheel, I, I, that came to me in a toy store. And was that an expensive feature to implement? Oh, it took a motor. Constantly trying to push the dollar envelope to get, um, you know, more things in your games, um, you know, that came under the cost envelope that you guys needed to hit? No, we were basically aware of what we could do, how many we uh, what we could do. The cost sometimes would run over, but the feature would be worth it. So if we ran over by a dollar or two, the uh, depended on the feature. So overall, did you did you really like working in the pinball industry? I mean, was it a fun job? Oh yes, I got out of the electronic industry into the pinball industry and stayed in it. I was such infatuated with the pinball industry after I got in, and I enjoyed working there. Were you a very good pinball player? To tell you the truth, before I went to Williams and got the job there, I never played a pinball in my life. After you started designing, did you get pretty good? Well, I had to, to get fairly good because after I put a game together, I played pinball all day to work out the books and, and, and the time that it takes to play and everything. So basically after I designed the game and put it together, at that time, I did, and uh, Steve did everything. We didn't have somebody put wire the game. We put the whole thing together, put the relays and everything, and wired the whole game, designed the cable that you put together. It was all done by us. Not like today. Guy designed the game and he turns it over to somebody else to put together. We did it all. But besides designing games, I used to go on the road teaching school. Did you have any particular theme 
that you like to have your games, you know, like a sports theme or a music theme or a current events theme or anything like that? No, it was all up to us. I, I had car racing, uh, games, sports teams, anything we wanted, as long as the game was halfway decent, a good game. Do you have any pinball games today, or did you not keep any of these games when you designed them? I never owned a pinball game at home. I, I gave one to uh, uh, my daughter and son-in-law. Uh, actually, Rob, Rob gave it to me to give it to, to him. That's the only game I ever had. I never kept the game. <laughs> I started up with that word. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So you you had a at the end of the day you were you had enough of pinball, huh? Well, I I, I was in love with pinball, but not to take home, not to play. I played them at home at work and. Uh, Listen to the bells, <laughs> but I have enough. I used to take my son when he was a kid to work and on the weekend and play play the games. Is there any uh, any particular stories or anything that uh, that I might have left out or need to ask you? Anything you remember that you know was it was a good story or something that you'd like to add? Like I say, Steve Cordick and I. Worked together for years, side by side, and, uh, we got along fine, and we are, we get along fine today, and I enjoyed most, with most of the people I worked with. Of course, when you work in a plant, there, there's always one or two that get on your nerves, but, uh, over the thirty some odd years I worked, in the industry, I enjoyed people, including the boss. <laughs> like I say, Sam Stern was a great guy, and uh, even when I went to Bowie, uh, Bill O'Donnell was a terrific guy, and uh, I enjoyed all of them. All right, Normal, thank you very much. I really appreciate you. Uh, having some time and, and letting me talk to you about this stuff. I don't mind. I, I enjoy talking to you. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much, Norman. You take care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. I'd like to thank Norm Clark for joining us here on TopCast. And uh, we really, really do appreciate his time. I hope you can join us again for another episode of TopCast.